This car is the most honest car you ever see. It's been a dream ever since I've had it. The first time I heard that engine screaming, I thought, I gotta have one of those. For me, the cars have personality. What's great about a BMW Classic is the community that surrounds it. When you listen to that, <laughs> that's why we're here. Welcome to a new episode of Classic Heart, the BMW Group Classic Podcast. My name, as usual, is JP, and our guest today is Peter Gleason. Peter, and you have to say this with the utmost respect, is a true self-made man. Growing up in a rough part of London, he had to earn money at a very young stage because he left home at 15. Until today, he has managed to own an amazing collection of significant classic cars with highlights like the M1 Pro car painted by Frank Stella. I'm looking very forward to learn what happened between 15 and now. And so I think, Peter, the stage is yours. Where do we find you today? Hello and hello to your audience. I, um, I'm sitting just north of Seattle, Washington, USA. So as you look at America, the very left-hand top corner, <laughs> just before Canada. So that's where you find me. Extremely cold as well. Okay. I could imagine. You have pretty damn winters there, right? Yeah, we can go. It's, it's it, much like Germany in a lot of ways, but you can very quickly, within an hour, like Germany, go to extremely cold, you know? So so I hope your buildings are as good built as the German ones. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Isolation. Exactly. That's the secret yeah. word. Peter, you live in the States now, as you just mentioned. But actually, you grew up in South London, and more precise, you grew up in Brixton, or between Brixton and Elephant and Castle. Yep. Let's say it's a rather rougher part of the city of London, <laughs> I would say. Yeah. How was growing up like there in the 60s? It was, um, you know, we can, uh, let's say it's rougher. It was the 60s and the 70s. The, You know, obviously, the, I was born in 1959, and... You know, the 60s as a young man, you, you really, you just remember being a kid, a child, you know, and doing things that kids do. By the time the 70s come along, when I, my teenage years, it's a lot more that I remember. And it was extremely violent, um, you know, on, you know, staying away from the violence. I remember uh, I wasn't a good attender of school. Um <laughs> I went when the truant officers made me or there's something that interested me. I enjoyed sports and like any young man, I enjoyed particular girls in school if they was there doing <laughs> that. But um, it was it was interesting. I, I knew I was poor. You know, it was poor, but I didn't, you know, so was everybody around you. Everybody around you was poor. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, through my life, I've had the opportunity with my success to be able to talk to children from them, them backgrounds that are starting to go off the rails and explain that, you know, you don't necessarily have to look up to, you know, the bad people you see growing up. And, um, but unfortunately where we grew up, you know, my family never had a car. My mum and dad never drove, but All the people with the best cars or the people you look at the most are unfortunately often the people that are doing bad things, you know? Yeah. And um, it's very hard. But 
I used to wander the streets and wander across the river to the good part of town and um, see people driving, you know, E-type Jaguars and Aston Martins and, of course, BMWs. And I thought that one day I would be rich and have a car. Any car, <laughs> it was it. As long as I had a car, I would consider that I'd made it in the world. <laughs> so, you know, South London was like a lot of big cities. It had its bad areas, you know. So. No, absolutely. And I mean, that's natural because with that amount of people, yep. of course, you have a different kind of uh, social scales. Yep in the society but when you're saying i think that was a very interesting point you said that you um also are in conversation sometimes with with the youth or the young people from the same let's say environment yep. uh, you grew up in i think they will understand you best but how do you see now the issue a little bit like if you know if i look at the glorification of all the 60s and 70s mobsters that you see now, yep. how does this help the cause to tell them not look up to the bad guys, try to do your own thing in a good way? It's really hard. Most of the talks I used to do was with our boxing gym in the UK, which is a amateur boxing club. And um, needless to say, the best boxing clubs are in the worst areas. Yes. And they knew me as a, a youngster and then knew me uh, when I become successful in business. So, you know, often I'd get asked to, talk to a kid and explain to them that, you know, and obviously this is a car thing and I don't I don't want to bore your listeners, but about the fact that the people they look up to, no matter how successful they become, no matter, like you said, they look at the gangsters from the 30s or the 60s or whatever, no matter how successful you become, you won't keep it. Yeah. And they look at me rather strangely and I go, you won't, because first the police or the tax authorities or whatever, and I said every other equivalent gangster will want to take it off you, but even more importantly, there will be a young 17 or 18-year-old who is exactly like you who will want to take it off you. And they look at you and say, no, 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 and I go, yes, you do. You know somebody who's 35 or 40 who's extremely successful and you want to take it from them. Yes, but on the shortcut. It, yeah, so you will never keep it. And and that's the – it's a much longer conversation, but, you know, where the conversation ends is trying to explain to them that no matter how successful you become, in that world you will not keep it, you know? So. I think that's very, very wise and so true. It, it is, but you've got to – you know, I have a saying that – Young kids where I grew up in every bad area in the world, if they believe they can become us, JP, they will try everything to become us. If they believe they can't become us, they will take it from us. Yes. So that, very well said. It's as simple as that. Absolutely. I apologize for going off track. <laughs> no, I think that's totally on track because at the end, you know, um, the desire for driving a dream car, or as you mentioned, to just drive a car, Uh, helped you, and I think you're a prime example, helped you to find the right ways of getting there. So it's absolutely not off the track, in my opinion. And um, But let's go back to the I idea you had at that time. So, you know, what was your, let's say, automotive socialization, let's say? So what was your early memories of cars growing up in that rough Brixton area? It was exactly that, JP. It was uh, wandering to the, you know, like like all big cities, the transition from rich to poor can happen very quickly. Yeah. And 
I was in England, what we'd call a street urchin. I don't know how it, how it translates much, but, you know, I just used to wander the streets and, you know, I started work at a very young age, at eight years old in a street market and 13 in construction. So in construction, I just used to sweep up the jobs, but the, uh, initially, and eventually learned all the trades, but that took me to the other side of the river. And, Mm -hmm. you know, so I was able to, you know, be in people's houses, working on people's houses, seeing, seeing success. And it definitely was, it sounds rather simplistic and shallow, but I, I associated these cars that I saw with success. Mm. And I, you know, as I've grown in life, I've, you wonder sometimes when you see a rich sports star who buys lots of cars and big houses and that, but it's often a natural progression for a poor guy who gets success to want to own things, you know? Yeah. But I associated that that if I become successful, that's what I'm going to have. I'm going to have a car. So, and, you know, in London, we was very lucky. There was a lot of nice cars wandering the streets in London. You know? And still doing. Yeah. So anytime I'm in London, I'd be there once a month to see my colleagues. Uh, you know, I'm always like astounded by the amount of vintage, modern and absolutely rare supercars. Yes. Was it the same in that time when you were like going on the other side of the river, watching cars, spotting yeah, cars? it seemed it to me, JP. Obviously, you know, our memories are wonderful things that we do it. But, you know, for me, I think now looking back at particularly E-type Jaguars and, and, and Aston Martins that I saw, um, they now obviously would be considered very old classics, but yes, <laughs> they was they was new cars at the time and relatively expensive. You know, not so much the E Type, but certainly the Aston Martins. You know, yeah. So you know, we, we already touched this that you, you you how your career started in a sense. When yep. was the time you got your first car? Oh, I was. Yeah, well, I can I can admit this now, but you know, in England, I JP, you you look like you're much younger than me. But when I was a kid, as long as you could see over the bar, you could order a beer. You know, yeah, and that was <laughs> it. And um, I was uh, definitely underage, and a a friend of mine mentioned that his dad wanted to sell his 1969 Austin three liter, very mm-hmm. very um, oh god, almost like a doctor's car back in yeah. the UK. But I remember the car because his dad had the car and it was a very clean car and he wanted £350 for it. And I was like, uh, will he take 300 And there was no mobile phones then. I had to wait for him to go back and ask his dad at home and, and do that. And I'd never, I'd never driven a car. And um, <laughs> so I asked, I asked him uh, to deliver it to my girlfriend's house because uh, by then I'd, I'd left home and was living. Believe it or not, I was living on my own in London. And really, um, yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. I uh, I basically left home at, at fifteen years old, so I was living on my own. So they delivered it to the girlfriend's house, which I had every intention of having the girlfriend's dad teach me how to drive. Yeah, and. Um, I was then going to walk home at, you know, a reasonable time to where I was living at the time. And I had the keys to a car and a car. Yeah. And I went, what, why am I going to walk? 
and <laughs> I got in the car and drove. And I really still remember my very first experience. It was, thankfully, it was an automatic, but I, my first experience of hitting the brakes onto Brixton High Street. And I hit them so hard, I nearly put myself through the windscreen because <laughs> <laughs> there was no finesse to it at all. And um, so that's basically how I learned to drive. I just got in a car and went. That was it. So. I mean, that's impossible today. Exactly. But on the other hand, also super romantic in our vision. Like, I mean, exactly. I, you know, I did my driving license in Germany and I suffered a lot going through that. And I was very jealous on my best mate at that time, Benji, who was in boarding school in the UK. And he was like with 16, driving, park here, done. Whereas I have to go to hours over hours yeah. in, in theory <laughs> and then having like driving on the autobahn, parking, a whole section. So yeah. it took me ages. Yeah. And by the way, for everyone interested, I failed the first time. So um, <laughs> I have to say that's uh, I'm not very proud of. But I mean, that's a very romantic idea. But I mean, you, you have been king of the castle with a car at that time, right? Oh, yeah. With your age. Absolutely. Absolutely. It was, uh, I, I felt so, you know, free and, and, you know, enjoying life. I wanted to do everything. And still today, I still love driving. You know, I still enjoy driving. And, um, yeah, absolutely. King of the castle. But, of course, couldn't wait to get another car. After I'd put a couple of dents in that car, you know. Yes. <laughs> so it's that, it, no matter what you get, you always look for the next thing. You always dream of the next one, you know. Yeah. It's, everybody does. That's so true. But in the end, there has to be some kind of limitation, let's say a limiter. So what is your limiter? JP, I, I consider um, that I have a seven and a half thousand square foot warehouse and yes. that's my limiter. If I, like at the moment, it's full up. Got it. And it's, uh, I have to limit myself because you, you get to the stage as well where you know, every car, they're old cars and every car needs it. Not every car, but cars, there's always work to do. There's always something to do with something, you know, and um, I actually still work for a living, so I can't, I can't be doing that. Um, but, yeah. Yeah. And when was the point when it was obvious to you that you are a collector of cars? Oh, very early. I mean... When I was working in construction, so my initial thing was if I worked in your house, JP, yeah. and I, I saw you had a nice car, I could be, we'd be doing a remodel or a new kitchen or something. And if you had a company car, which most people did then, I would say, ah, when you get a new car, I'll give you 50 pounds if you allow me to buy it, you know? Okay. And um, so I started acquiring a few cars and enjoying that and then you know I, I sold a couple like to you know make a little money as well at the time yeah and then I went and bought a a Triumph Vitesse convertible sounds very fancy yeah I know and I fully restored it everything I did, obviously I didn't do the mechanicals but I did everything myself I put Triumph stag seats in it I put mm -hmm. stag wheels on it I did everything and um so I definitely knew at that point, which would have been late 70s, but it's, I think the first time you buy your first classic car, you're a collector, you know? 
You truly are. And I think, it, you know, to be honest, it shows again the smart way you think. I mean, taking people who did not even been aware of selling a car into sell you the car while you do some construction work at their places. I mean, that's super special and super smart. But what are the other ways? I mean, you can't be always on a construction site to find a car. So how did you build up your car collection at that time? You know, I, I, I literally got the Sunday Times at six o'clock in the morning. I saw the phone number. In them days, you could tell the area the phone number was. And I started driving towards the area. Yeah. And then at about 7.30, I called the number. And so I was the first there and, and got the car. I mean, you know, as a crazy collector, you used to do things like that in the day, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Especially if you find a car that you really want because you think it fits to your collection. So that makes total sense to do crazy things like this. So, but going back to the chronological way. So step by step, you build up a car collection. But I was wondering how you became so much focused on BMWs. I mean, you were a young kid in England. I think you were surrounded by European cars, not that much because more British cars. So why you became such a BMW fan? And especially, why did you start collecting BMW race cars? It, there was parts of the equation as going along. Obviously, it was a lot earlier than I actually concentrated on them. I always liked them. I used to sneak into Brands Hatch as a young kid in the mid to early 70s. I would have been 13, 14 years old when I did it. Um, I went with uh, a, a friend initially, mm -hmm. but then I used to go on my own. And I was this weird kid that went and watched motor racing. You know, it, nobody was like, Who's this weird kid who gets on a train and goes to the track? And and I used to sneak into Brands Hatch. So I saw obviously some great cars racing in and some great drivers in the yeah. 70s. But the I always remember the touring cars and the BMW touring cars. So that was definitely an initial part. Then my younger brother and another close friend both had 2,500 E3s. And um, so I got to drive an E3, and I, I would still buy one today if it was in this colour with um, silver with the blue velour interior. It was wow. just gorgeous, absolutely. You know, so I had the touring car experience at Brands Hatch, mm. the cars that I'd seen on the good side of the river, and, you know, they just, you know, BMWs were almost unobtainable to kids from where I grew up. You yeah. know, you really was, you was a... <laughs> Uh, for want of a better description, a big-time gangster if you had a BMW, you know. It's, it's, uh, I hope your brother wasn't, by the way. No, 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 no. <laughs> I think we just have to do one little excourse because, you know, just to be as a service uh, podcast, we have to talk about Brands Hatch. So yep. Brands Hatch is a legendary racing track, close the closest racing track actually to London in the UK. Yep. And yep. um, tell us more, how long did it take you from Elephant and Castle going down there at that time in the 70s? I, I used to get a train, Dan. I think it used to take me about, I don't know, 30 to 40 minutes, 
30 to 40 minutes. It yeah. wasn't, it wasn't terrible. And then a little walk, you know, and um, yeah, but I, I, you know, embarrassingly, I always used to sneak in. How and, did you um, do that? Uh, sometimes through the fence, sometimes just walking in with other people. I remember once walking in with a team, just followed a team. There was a team going and I just started talking and walking along and, and everybody just ignored this this kid who was interested in everything, you know. It's like, Brilliant. Yeah. And what do you remember, who were your racing icons you saw on Brent's Hedge at that time? Who were these oh, guys? It would have been... You know, all the ones, obviously, you know, there was Jackie Hicks, uh, Brian Redman, Andretti, uh, Peterson. I remember a great German driver who not many English concentrated on, and sadly we lost him, was Rolf Stommelen. Oh, who was a of great, course. Yeah, a great driver. Yeah. But which car is it that you have in your collection? Which uh... It's the... It's the um, The works CSL, uh, the Sebring winner, the IMSA car. So when, ah. yeah, yeah, when BMW came to America in 1975 with what um, the guys, uh, Rudiger Miner and Peter Heiss and all that, uh, they said the Americans called them the Cowboys because <laughs> they, yes. they, they was young and they was, they was having fun. Um, but they came over here in 75, obviously, to establish the name that, It was it was BMW, not British Motor Works, but yeah. um, they did their first race at Daytona, which they you know uh, they did well, but they didn't finish. And and then um, this car at Sebring uh, with both Redmond, Stuck, uh, Moffitt, and Posey uh, yeah. won the 12 hours at Sebring. So for me, I feel very privileged to own it, JP. Huh? I find it interesting. I would like to come back to uh, Stummelin because I think it's very rare that someone mention him uh, because it's not one of the larger names but I mean he drove everything multiple times uh, Le Mans by the way in Le Mans he was I think it was 1980 he drove with uh, Gozzi Crema racing team together with uh, Tezo Ikuzawa which we had his daughter on that podcast my Ikuzawa oh wow I think it was wow. like episode four so if you want to listen to that story just go back And have a look I, at this and listen to it. I will do it. that. Thank you for telling me. Yeah. It's, uh, she was really like brilliant. Also like growing up in the shadow of her, you know, her, her father was the only famous Japanese racer at that time, right? So, wow. and he was a style icon. So, but yeah. do you remember also seeing Stomlin racing in Brands Hatch? Yes. Yes. Great. Yeah. Coming back to the collection, and uh, we, we were just talking about how you became BMW crazy, and we just mentioned this a little bit, that it was a family affair, then also through racing. Um, but what do you think got you really attracted to BMW race cars? Because we need to explain this a little bit. You were one of the first collectors that saw the interest and the value the historical value not speaking about the financial value but the historical value of bmw motorsport cars when did this start it um obviously i always liked them and you know when i you know as you get success and get a bit of money you buy things you want but like in business i'm not very i mean i can have fun yeah but i also need to be focused and you know many years ago i started i had a few street bmws and then i started uh, collecting more and 
you know, I found that I was gyrating towards the area I loved, which was the that early motorsport period. Mm-hmm. And I, I collected the street cars, but then I was always going to the track to watch the race cars yeah. and the and vintage racing and things like that. And then I I just at one stage I I got enough street cars and I went, you know, I love history, I love the racing, I love everything about the history of that period. So it just became really a natural progression, JP. Mm-hmm. And obviously, you know, no, I don't mean to sound egotistic or anything, but obviously I had the, the means to be able to do it as well. And you need to build the connections, you know. I, I, I couldn't have done this without some, you know, people, experts, people I trust and whatever. And in building the history, you know, people have been kind enough, you know, a couple I've mentioned, but, you know, like Rudy and uh, Peter, Rudy Gemina, Peter Heiss and, and other people that were there at the time yeah. that have been kind kind enough to share their expertise with me. Yeah. And, but it, it, it just seemed a natural progression to me. But when I started doing it, JP, uh, you know, by then I was here in America and so I, sort of I, I built a friendship in the classic car world and literally but for one guy who was a Dutch guy who lives here um lived lived here since he was a young kid mm-hmm. everybody was like what are you doing collecting them BMWs and I went it's just what I love and the Dutch guy who actually was the Dutch consulate for a while he said you're all sitting here wondering what he's doing he, and, and it was a very nice compliment I mean I don't yeah. and he went He's the smartest guy in the room. He sees the future. None of you see the future. And nobody got them at the time, JP. Nobody cared. Now everybody cares. Absolutely. Everybody. As I say rather flippantly, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, I was the biggest fool in the world. I've done nothing different and suddenly I'm clever. You know, yeah. Like, yeah. You know this, is, this is the beauty of this world we're in. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It, you know, and people say to me, what happens if the market crashes? Because I'm in the financial world and, and things like that. Uh, I, I, I do work for fund management groups. Mm-hmm. And I go, I don't care. I buy what I love. Yeah, It doesn't matter. I don't buy what I don't love. And that's what I was doing when I started doing it. The, the value of it, of course, was important, but it was about the history. And, you know, over time, the collection has, has honed from – just wanting cars, wanting old cars to, you know, which is the core of my collection there is BMW Motorsport. Mm-hmm. And I'm always aiming towards, I like to say it's climbing the ladder. So if you look at like M1s I've owned, I've owned eight M1s to get to the best one I can get. Yes. I've owned nine, I mean, think about it, I've owned nine Batmobiles <laughs> to get to the best one I can get. Um, and then you do crazy stuff like, you know, this sounds silly, but yeah, then you kind of have to have one of each. If you look at CSLs, you know, a right-hand drive, a left-hand drive carb car, a Batmobile, and then the most important race team. So you've got to have a Schnitzer car. You've got to have an Alpina car. You've got to have a factory car. I've just got the factory car, the works car. I really wanted one of the works track cars. And, you know, that's that's took me forever. I only got it March this year. Really? But it, it doesn't. Yeah, but it doesn't mean that I didn't want it 20 years ago. But, sure. you know, you have to be patient. You have to, you know, take your time. 
And I think that's the, the biggest advice you can give for everyone who's starting a collection or who is running at a young age a collection is that be patient and don't let impatience drive you while buying a car. Would you say that's Absolutely. fair to say? It's here's, here's a reason why I don't have a 507. Of course I would love a 507. Mm. But when 507s were worth 600, you know, when they was worth 300 grand, I thought they was worth 150. When they were 600, I thought they was worth 400. When they was 900, I thought they was worth 600. Yeah. Now they're two and a half million. But if you get on the ladder, you, you, obviously you don't buy a bad car. You should buy, you know, the best you can afford. Yes. But get on the ladder. If you really love something and you feel as if, you know, you can don't don't always go out there looking for the best one in the world. If you saw my first M1, it was what the Americans say, ridden hard and put away wet, you know. Yes. It was pretty bad M1, but I was on the ladder and it allowed me to get to the next M1 and the next M1. And eventually when I bought the one I have now, the uh ex-Johnny Chicago car, which Johnny owned for 31 years. When I was asked to buy that car, the price was 50% above what any M1 had ever sold for in the public markets. And I had five minutes to make the decision, JP, just five minutes. Wow. But I looked at the provenance and went, i got to do it. It's, you know, 8,000 miles from new, totally original guaranteed factory race driver, kept for 31 years. Yeah, but I mean, getting a real, like, a genuine M1 Pro car is As well. absolutely yeah. priceless. Peter, yeah. when did you move to the US and why? I moved into, well, my furniture moved in 2005. I was, uh, I'd been sent into a mining company that was in trouble and, I was, uh, I, you know, my job is to go in and sort out bad situations and mm -hmm. turn the company around. And um, so I was building a mine in Spain, but my furniture moved here in 2005. So I like that. That's it. Yeah. And with the furniture came also some cars you already used in Europe? No, I, I, I still had some cars in England and I left them in England for a little while. Mm -hmm. I, di I didn't bring them initially. And I still, my schnitzer car's being rebuilt in England now, and I have a Eggenberger E24 that uh, did ETCC two years and Spa 24 hours. That's still in England, um, and a couple of other little little street toys. And in fact, two of the cars that I sold when I left England, I rather re regretted that. I didn't realize I could take them to America. I, I didn't know until I moved here what I could bring and what I couldn't bring, you know? Due so. to regulations, like road regulations? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And now you've been quite a long time in the US. How would you describe the differences in the car, or let's say in the collector scene between US and UK, as you experience both sides? Whoa. That's a that's a good question. Um, you know, sometimes I'm lucky <laughs> and finding the right good questions. Exactly. Now you've done well so far. Well, obviously, <laughs> there's a, a penchant for muscle cars here. Mm -hmm. You know, they definitely don't know. They still, I know BMWs, and of course, they know BMWs on the street, but they don't know BMWs racing history and as successful as it was as as much as a European collector would. Mm -hmm. And 
I don't know if we do that in Europe. Obviously, there's cars that are not done for the show circuit, but there's a lot of cars here that are done just for the show circuit, Mm -hmm. you know? I see more of that here. I think we're more prone to drive our cars in Europe. Yeah. And I'm, you know, I found in a very short period that my love of particularly of BMW history has meant that I'm kind of unusual out here. Mm-hmm. But I wouldn't be unusual in Germany. I wouldn't be unusual in parts of Europe, you know. When I started collecting BMW race cars and nobody could get it, and I said, you just, you know, especially to Americans, look at the history of BMW in the 70s and other periods. We was winning everything, you know, just going out and, and just amazing. And, you know, if you can, if even at that time, if you look at cars that were collected, there was, you know, obviously your Ferraris, your Lamborghinis, Maseratis, Alfa, whatever, and Rolls Royce and Bentleys for different people, but even some special faults that were winning races. And obviously all the American cars. And I said, nobody gets the BMW race cars. Why is nobody collecting the BMW race cars? What do you think is the reason? I I, I just don't know. I don't know why others didn't get it, JP. I can't answer. I mean, good for you, right? You know, my success in life, not just in cars, also in business, is I've never been frightened to follow my instincts and take you know, believe in what I believe in and go for it, you know? Yeah, of course. So if you, I mean, as we said, you can be very lucky that uh, you can fulfill your dreams within your abilities, also financially. And, you know, I think there's no bad thing to say that, you know, it is quite expensive to collect the right cars and there are many lucky people who are able to do so. But you can also start your passion on a very small stance like you did. Um. If we look at your BMWs especially, is there one car that would go last? If everything has to go, uh, is there one car that needs to that, that will stay? I make a description that this is I, I love cars, I love BMW motorsport and I love art. Mm-hmm. And there's one car in the world, the the Frank Stella M1 Pro car, which you know, I had the, the BASF car before, but I had to sell that car to buy the Frank Stella Peter Gregg art car. Now, obviously, it's not one of the factory art cars, but it's the only car that's often put in the books alongside them. And, but there's another car, and the car is the rally car. And this was a car that, you know, had, had done four rallies for BMW in 1972. It was quite obvious that Herr Nierpasch was not interested in rallies. He wanted to go racing, you know? Yeah. And um, so at the end of 72, the car was sold to uh, Kopchen, and I, I know I pronounced that incorrectly, and they, they ran it twice in 73, and then the car went missing off the face of the earth. Yeah. Nobody knew where it went. And um, 10 years ago, I found the car in Philadelphia in red and rather ugly, and it took me three years to get it off the owner. I got it into my garage. I rubbed down the paint and there was the white and the blue and the white where it should be and the Colorado orange under that because the initial cars before actual motorsport were obviously taken off the production line and then turned into race cars. And I like to describe that car as as kind of my two in car moon because I – 
I fanned the car, I researched the car, I bought the car and I restored the car and, you know, I've continued obviously to do the research. So it, it probably would be the rally car, although not the most valuable, mm-hmm. but it's just such a personal collection, you know, no brokers in the way, no, nobody found the car and tried to sell it to me, you know. And so many people have said to me over the years on the east coast of America, oh, I saw that car, and I go, yeah, but you didn't know what it was, did you? <laughs> so it's, Absolutely. And, <laughs> There's an interesting story, that uh, very uh, connection to BMW. I got that after three years. I got it uh, in my warehouse and rubbed down the paint and confirmed all the everything in the car. And in May that year, I was in Munich, and uh, Klaus Kutcher and some of the classic team invited me to lunch. Yeah, and I was in a car with three other classic guys. And I said, oh, by the way, guys, I found the Olympic rally car, the Olympia rally car. And immediately Klaus turned around and said, I knew that car was red. I knew it was in America, but we could never find it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I went, okay, well, I'm glad I found it first. Well, that, I, mean, yeah, I, it, I think everyone gets how this is a special collection for you. If even BMW Group Classic wasn't able to find it, but speaking about the rally car, so we're speaking uh, about that, like I mean, iconic rally car that has the nice German word Schalensitzer on the back of the car on the side. It would have what? The word Schalensitzer as advertising on the rear of the car, like on the side rear. Is that the Olympia rally car? The Olympia rally car, yeah. There was only one Olympia rally yeah, car, you exactly. know. So it had. I'm trying to think of the livery now, and um, it had the shield for the seats, you know, exactly. the sponsorship for the seats. Yeah, it, on the side is Schalensitzer. Is that how you say it? Exactly. And uh, <laughs> do you know what Schalensitzer means? No. And can you say that again for me clearly, so I can say Schalensitzer? Schalensitzer. Okay. What, so what does it mean? It's bucket seats. Oh right! <laughs> so that's uh, that's what it says on the side of your of of the ninety seventh Olympia Rally car, and okay. I mean this car is legendary, driven by Rauner Altonen and uh, a fellow British uh, John Davenport. Is yeah. that correct? Exactly. Yes, it's in that race. Yes, in that race, it was driven by others in the other three rallies it did, and obviously uh, when it when it was Copchen, it's uh, Willie uh, uh, Mayer drove it. Yeah, you know so. Absolutely. Now, yeah. I can totally get why this car is special to you because, I mean, that's uh, one of the rare gems of BMW motorsport history. Yeah. Um, let me also come back a bit to the uh, M1 Pro car. Yep. Um, because I think it's uh, we need to mention also that this car has kind of a tragedy within it, in a sense. Oh, yes. In August 1978, Peter Gregg wrote to, he didn't write to just anybody. He wrote to Jochen Nierpasch and said to Jochen Nierpasch, I want an M1 Pro car. I want it with two seats because they only came with one seat. I want Blackwatch Tartan on the seats. I want this kind of exhaust. I want it to make a great sound, you know. And um, and then uh, this was in August 78. And then in September, Peter Gregg, with his friend Frank Stella, the artist, went to watch their mutual friend, Ronnie Peterson, race at Monza. And Ronnie Peterson died in that race. And the understanding is that, uh, you know, upon that, Frank Stella said that when the car came, they would paint the car in memory of Ronnie Peterson. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. And if ever you go to the car, then arrived with um, with Peter Gregg in 1979. I even have the Lufthansa uh, uh, documents for when it was put on the plane and and done that. So you know Frank Stella did the design on the car, and then um, unfortunately, then Peter Gregg ended up in a car accident and ended up with double vision, and committed suicide. And so the car never got raced. So it's probably one, if one of the few, if not the only pro car in the world that's never had any damage because it never raced. Yeah. So it makes it a very interesting car from two respects and in doing that. And there was another car that I really should never have been able to own because it was owned by the Guggenheim for 12 years in New York and really should have stayed with them and, well, I laugh when I show people the paperwork at what the Guggenheim yeah. the Guggenheim valued the artwork in 1999. They valued the artwork at 2.1 million dollars, and the car at zero. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's funny on the one hand, and on the other hand, totally understandable because Guggenheim is not known for being the most renowned car appraisers. I mean, their thing they know very good is art and design. So clearly it makes total sense that we're just looking on the artwork and totally neglect the car. But let me also share a fond memory I have connected to Frank Stella. Yep. Because many people are not realizing or not aware that he is a true car nut. I remember one of my very first PR events I was invited uh, as my position as editor at Classic Driver at that time was that we went to, I believe it was Hockenheim Ring, where they celebrated the BMW M1 Pro Car anniversary and they got Frank Stella over. I mean, seeing Frank Stella sitting in front of the Warhol art car, I mean, that's a combo that's absolutely crazy. And he was so passionate and went later racing with Prince Poldi. Yeah. What a, a motor racing fan Frank Stella is. And yeah. he done, first off, the, the artwork on my my car, the Peter, or the Peter Gregg car, is uh, called Polar Coordinates. And yeah. if you if you go to an art gallery and you see that series of artwork from Frank Stella, it will say, as it should say, in memory of Ronnie Peterson. Yes. He actually done that series of artwork in memory of Ronnie Peterson. And he actually done a series of artwork, which was his, still his colour theme, you know, that them straight lines and everything. Yeah. But of racetracks. Exactly. Of race 1982, track. Hockenheim. It was uh, created yeah. in 1982. I think the it's now in Philadelphia, as far as I know. Um, yeah. I yeah. mean, he is a true car enthusiastic artist. Absolutely. Yeah. No, brilliant. I've, I mean, everyone who didn't get this, please Google everything you find out about the M1 Pro Car and Frank Stella, and you will understand why these two nutheads here are going crazy about this. So I think then you will understand. So please look it up. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, we spoke about the 7,500 square feet collect where your collection is stored, so the building where it is, the warehouse, you call it. Um, yeah. Is that your limiting factor? So do you say, okay, if it fits, it goes. If not, I don't buy it? Uh, no, it's actually the opposite. That If something I absolutely have to have in the collection, then something has to leave the building. Yeah. So that's the limiting factor. So I say that, JP, 
with a qualification that, you know, I have two cars in the Ultimate Driving Museum in South Carolina. I yeah. have four cars in England at the moment. I have three cars in different stages of restoration. If they all come home now, my 7,500 square foot would not work, you know. So, uh, but my ultimate aim is to build the best street car and the best race car I can find of every motorsport car I love. Yes. My best description of that in the collection, and I've got, I think I've done it in M1s, I've done it in CSLs, I've done it, but in two 002s. Mm-hmm. So in two 002s, you know, I have chassis number one, 2002 Turbo. Chassis Incredible. number one. So that's my street car. And my race car is the earliest Alpina Works car in the world. And if you're 2002, where else are you going to go? There is nowhere else to go. And that's the aim of the collection. So that ladder, climbing that ladder all the time, is trying to get to that. Yeah. Like when I had the BASF Pro Car, to me it was a, it, the BASF Pro Car, which is back in Germany now, is such an iconic car. And I miss it so much. It's one of the few cars that I really... I miss many cars, but I really miss that car. But I couldn't own two pro cars. I didn't have that much money. You know, I I don't have all the money in the world. I sometimes have to sell that. But for me, loving art, loving cars, loving BMW, motorsport, whatever, the Peter Greg Frank Stella car, for me, is the ultimate, you know? So... That's why the BASF car had to go, you know? Clearly understood. Um, Peter, unfortunately, we come to our last question now because time is an issue, as always. So my last question is, is there, let's say, kind of a holy grail car where you think it has to be in my possession? I want to become the custodian for that car. Which is not yet in your collection. You know, my holy grail initially was owning a car. When when the M1 came out, I never dreamed I'd own an M1. I never dreamed I would own an M1. Now I've owned eight of them. Um, (laughs) And, of course, any of BMW factory art cars, which they'll never sell me. (laughs) Obviously not. (laughs) I may never get a 507, but I want one. (laughs) And I dream of having one. Nice. So. Uh, Peter, unfortunately, all good things have to come to an end. And that's also meaning that I have to say bye-bye to you. I really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you very much for letting us speaking so open and freely about your collection and when you started. Thank you very, very much for joining us at this episode of Classic Heart. Thank you, JP. I've enjoyed the conversation as well. And for all listening in, thank you for joining us for this, I think, really outstanding episode of Classic Heart. And if you like our little series of podcasts, please do us a favor, leave us comments, what you think, who should be our next guest, improvements, things you like. Everything is very well received. And please leave us a high star rating at the podcast service you're using. And you know... If you don't want to miss an episode of Classic Heart, please hit the subscribe button. Thank you very much and hear you all soon. Thank you, Peter. Be safe. Thank you. And you as well. Thank you. Thank you.